This is a ceremony to bless the ground. Lytton residents take turns scooping gravel from a mound and pouring it into a hole a few yards below. Two years ago today, on June 30th, 2021, a fire started by the railroad bridge just south of this site. Most of Lytton burned down. Hundreds of people lost their homes and two died. Each person hands the shovel off to another. Most hesitate before releasing the gravel, pausing over the ledge to say a prayer. Some people drive the shovel upward so the gravel lifts in the air before it falls. Others simply rotate the handle, letting the gravel fall softly down from the blade. It's like a funeral. You go to a funeral, you, you throw the dirt. You're saying your final goodbyes to your loved one. Today, that's what we're doing. We're, we're burying old lit. blessing the ground, the community held a prayer walk through town. We passed empty lots closed off by blue wire fences. Two years after the fire in Lytton, nothing has been rebuilt. There's some debris, but most lots have been cleaned, exposing just a concrete foundation or a hole where a building used to be. Only a few details indicate there was a fire, charred trees and lamppost shades that look like melted candles. It took 10 minutes to reach the end of Main Street, where around 60 people have gathered on a gravel site for speeches and prayers. It's dry hot, 33 degrees Celsius, 92 Fahrenheit, and there's a tent for elders and kids, but most stand in the sun. To the west, the site slopes down to the Fraser River. On the mountainside overlooking Lytton from the east is the railway. Its trains are running constantly during the ceremony. There's a range of speakers. They're from a disaster relief organization in Vancouver, the Anglican Church in Lytton, the Buddhist community in the neighboring Botani Valley, and the Inklakatma Nation. This prayer by Amy is in Inklakatma, an endangered language that community members are actively working to teach and learn. Another elder, Pauline, also offers a blessing. He asks the water to protect and to hold all our people, that soon all our people will come back home and we can all be together again. I love all of you and I can't wait for that day to come. And we can have our community back. Home. Most residents still haven't been able to return to Lytton. Today, community members are coming from where they've been staying since the fire, places like Lillooet and Chilliwack and Kamloops, which are all at least an hour away. 
For the past two years, recovery has been mired in a series of government regulations and procedures. There was a lengthy soil remediation after the fire baked heavy metals into the dirt. Then there was an archaeological survey in search of artifacts from the First Nation people who lived there before it was lit. New net zero building requirements demand approvals and inspections and high costs that most residents can't afford. After the fire, Mayor Denise O'Connor was elected on a platform to speed up recovery. At the ceremony, she shares a welcome update. We have all the approvals now to start the backfill, which means next week we're going to have backfill happening in the village here. So yeah, pretty exciting. Today it's clear that the blessing of the ground means several things at once. Some people hope for the return of the old Lytton. Others look forward to a new community. Father Angus from the Anglican Church invites community members to help fill the holes that were left by the fire. Creator of all, you call us to stand together here today to fill the holes of the past with clean soil and water, the building blocks of a new community. Two years after the fire, the Lytton community is still figuring out how to recover. Part of the challenge has to do with the scale of the loss. Not only were homes and buildings destroyed, but so were building codes, town bylaws, community centers, parks, archives, and museums. What does a community do when it loses everything from physical infrastructure to government documents, community gathering places, and cultural objects? How does it recover its culture and community and chart a path forward? Archival Ecologies, a new audio story series about cultural collections like archives and museums in states of disruption, when they are burned by a fire, flooded by a storm, or invaded by insects or mold. We'll look at collections from across the world in places like British Columbia, Northern Europe, and the South Pacific, where ecological forces have reshaped collections and transformed their role in culture. The show is produced by Princeton University's Blue Lab and led and hosted by me, Jamie Collins. This season, we'll be telling a story of Lytton, a small town in the Fraser Canyon region of British Columbia that lost culturally significant collections when it burned to the ground in a 2021 heatwave-fueled wildfire. Archives can be many things. They can be official collections of documents and books, the kind of thing you might expect to find in a capital city or a university. Or they can exist in museums and art galleries. But they can also be in people's homes, in a living room or basement or even in a personal notebook of observations and quotations. We might even think of the soil underneath buildings as an archive, a collection of physical, chemical, and cultural information about what has been there in the past. Archives can take many forms, but as collections of objects, documents, and other information, they provide the scaffolding for stories that carry meaning and cultural identity. In many different ways, Archives are places where people turn to find identity and to tell stories about who and where they are. So how do communities grapple with the loss of objects and documents that let them tell stories about their culture? What happens to cultural identity when the objects and spaces that hold stories are lost or damaged?
Litton, first and foremost, represents a form of identity. It's who I am. This is Patrick Michel. He's the retired chief of the Kanaka Bar Indian Band, which lies about a 15-minute drive down the river from Lytton. Patrick has lived in Lytton his whole life and lost his house in the fire. To me, it is a place, a geographical place, that has provided my family with sustenance for more than 8,000 years. And while I, I can't say and speak beyond what I know in my own lifetime, what I am, though, is a product of 8,000 years of learning. So sometimes I'll speak about things that might have happened a thousand years ago, right? I remember when Simon Fraser arrived on June 20th of 1808. Why? Because the stories that were told to me weren't told to me. It was told to my grandmother by her grandmother who was alive at the time. So what happens is it's really hard for me to separate out traditional stories that are handed down from real life experiences. So Lytton becomes identity. It's, it's who I am. It's who my family is. So I, I don't know if I can articulate any more on that other than it's, it's my home. Lytton is a small village about three and a half hours northeast of Vancouver. The town's located at the confluence of the Fraser and Thompson Rivers in a canyon that's windy and arid. During the summer, it can get quite hot. The Inklakatma have inhabited the land for at least 7,000 years. European settlers arrived in the area when Simon Fraser traveled down the river in 1808. Near the middle of the century, the area's population boomed during the gold rush. After mining activity waned, settlers flocked to the area again around the turn of the 20th century. This time they came to build the railways. Before the fire, Lytton was officially the home of 210 residents. With the closest town nearly an hour away, thousands more relied on the town as a source of community. We do begin with the latest on a wildfire disaster in British Columbia. It's in the community of Lytton. The town of Lytton was engulfed by flames. Nearly 90% of the village burned to the ground. It's been a summer of devastating wildfires. Devastating wildfires that tore through the village. Hometown lost in less than an hour. Four major cultural collections were lost in the fire. The Lytton Chinese History Museum, the Lytton Museum and Archives, a collection of Inklakatma baskets, and a collection of Anglican commemorative plates, though countless collections of personal significance also perished. Yeah, so the hole in the ground we see here is the remains of the museum, and it would have been almost right at the, at the front of this level ground. And then the back of the building would have been kind of where you see the edge of the concrete in the bottom about there, and then the rest was dirt before. Lorna Fandrich founded the Lytton Chinese History Museum in 2017 to tell the stories of Chinese settlers in Lytton and the surrounding areas. It was built at the site of a former Joss house, just down the embankment from the railway tracks. A few blocks away across town, the Lytton Museum and Archives resided in an old railway worker's house and was the municipal museum, collecting objects related to the Lytton area. These ranged from ancient fossils to artifacts evidencing histories of settlement. It is the second major collection lost in the fire. We're rocking right beside the museum right now. It was a really nice little railway worker's house, about 25 feet square, roughly, maybe 30 feet square, and main floor and a basement on half of it. That hole is where the half basement was, and over there, there was a crawl space there. Richard Forrest spent decades stewarding the collection and is an expert on the history of the town. For Richard, as for many community members, 
Litton's archives didn't only exist in the footprints of museums. Actually, an old um, drill that they used to use to drill the holes in track. And these down here are Haytongs. All this paved out stuff here was called Caboose Park because we had a beautiful 1940s wooden caboose here. Lytton First Nation's collection of Inklakatma baskets also lived in many places, from personal homes to public institutions. It was the third major collection taken by the fire. John Hogan is an Inklakatma knowledge keeper and lost his mother's collection of baskets. Other than the Lytton First Nation, the collection outside of that that was quite large was my mother and my own personal collection. People would bring my mother or I baskets saying that their family no longer wanted these and they wanted us to have them. So those were the two huge collections in town. And then from the homes that got burnt down, there were probably about 20 homeowners that had varying collections within their own private homes. When John was telling me about the baskets, he also mentioned a collection of Anglican plates. They're a type of commemorative dish made by churches to celebrate special events or milestones. The town's Anglican church started collecting them to celebrate its 90th birthday in 2012. The plates were the fourth major collection destroyed by the fire, and according to John, the church had a lot. We knew we had a few of these Anglican plates around, so we had suggested, why don't we try to get 90 of these plates and just put them on display so people brought out from their own home collections and some people had looked in thrift stores and we had gotten really close and many people thought we had the largest Anglican plate collection in Canada here in Lytton. Lytton is a place where its history is uncommonly present. Piles of rubble produced by mining still mark the landscape. Acacia trees once used to make wagon wheels during the gold rush flourish on the hillsides. Trains frequently pass on the railroad tracks above and below the town. Many Chinese communities who emigrated to Canada worked on the railway. Lorna showed me a small green jar that had survived the fire. It is a so-called ginger jar, used by Chinese settlers to store pickles and food. The jar is cool to the touch, about four inches high and hexagonal in shape, coloring in from the shoulder to a smooth circular rim. The glaze is a dark jade green, though exposure to heat and ash during the fire has caused the glaze to crackle and change color, turning it a deep rust in patches. Decorative images, faintly discernible through the layer of glaze, have been pressed into the sides of the jar, each encased in a rectangular frame. Lorna tells me the jar is missing its cork lid, which burned during the fire. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Canadian government built three railways through Lytton. First, there was the Canadian Pacific Railway in the late 1800s. It was built to establish coast-to-coast nationhood in Canada. It was followed by the Canadian National Railway and the Pacific Great Eastern in the early 1900s. Together, they connected towns, encouraged trade, and brought crowds of workers to Lytton. By connecting settler outposts in the province, the Canadian government used infrastructure to bring First Nation homelands under the nation's control. So let's slow down for a second. Land is important to the telling of history and it's worth being clear about what that means. Most of British Columbia sits on unceded First Nations land, about 95%. 
the village of Lytton is part of that 95%. What that means is that across most of the province, treaties were not signed between First Nations and settler governments. Instead, in much of British Columbia, land was just taken from the First Nations people living there, who were told to live on much smaller reserves. This happened through a labyrinthine series of governmental policy and acts, including the federal 1876 Indian Act, the 1879 Dominion Lands Act, and the Consolidated Railway Act passed in the same year, as well as the provincial 1916 McKenna-McBride Royal Commission, among countless others. Embedded in each are provisions of land for the passage and financing of the railway. An Act Respecting the Canadian Pacific Railway 44 Victoria, Chapter 1, 1881 Schedule Contract Dated 21st October 1880 Schedule A Referred to in the foregoing contract Section 12 The government shall extinguish the Indian title affecting the lands herein appropriated and to be hereafter granted in aid of the railway. To build the railway, railway companies needed money and they needed land. The government facilitated this by simply taking land from landholders and giving it to the railway company, who could then build on it and sell any extra to raise funds. These railway belts often eroded the already small portions of reserve land that were allocated to First Nations communities. The railway belt extended approximately 20 miles, 32 kilometers, on either side of the railway. In 1914, Billy Sy of nearby Boston Bar testified to the McKenna McBride Commission. In a transcript of that testimony, he explains, I have had some trouble with the CPR. They want to take my land. That is, the land I have been living on for some years. They told me I would have to leave there because it belonged to them. The CPR has moved their fence right up to my house, and they have taken in the principal dwelling part. I am talking about reserve number two, and they say I will have to move away from there. When the train runs through town, it's hard to ignore. It hisses and screams, and if you stand close enough, the ground shakes. It's the feeling of friction, metal on metal. Today, the train drowns out the sounds of cars on the highway farther up the slope. The highways now follow a similar route along the river. When you drive into Lytton, you pass a sign welcoming you to Canada's hotspot before driving under a CN rail overpass. Lytton does record the highest temperatures in Canada, and this has to do with its geography. Lytton sits deep inside the Fraser Canyon, which acts like an oven. As the mountainsides heat in the sun, they trap hot air by the valley floor. Sagebrush, Douglas fir, and pine trees are fuel for wildfires. British Columbia faces a fire season every summer. The risk is so high that the whole province is under a seasonal campfire ban. But some years are worse than others, and several factors determine how intense a fire season will be. And one of them is the heat. 
In 2021, the entire Pacific Northwest experienced a record-breaking heat wave. Community members remembered the heat that summer. The two factors that were the big deal in this fire, obviously, were the extreme heat, but also Lytton is always windy, or almost always. That's Lorna, who started the Chinese History Museum. The day of the fire, I was out just sort of keeping my yards busy. And when I went home, I said to Bernie, it's the weirdest thing because the, even the acacia trees don't like this heat because their leaves were crumbling like a dried herb. On June 30th, the day after Lytton reached 49.6 degrees Celsius, that's 121 in Fahrenheit, the conditions are just right for fire. As Mike Flanagan, the research chair for predictive services, emergency management, and fire science at nearby Thompson Rivers University explains, it was hot, and this created the perfect conditions for wildfire. The previous all-time record high temperature for Canada prior to the 2021 episode was 45 degrees Celsius. Lytton broke that June 27th, broke it again 28th, broke it again on the 29th, 49.6 degrees Celsius. The wind is blowing strong. The fuels are crispy. You walk them, you go crunch, crunch, crunch. Then you get little burning embers. It's almost like a leapfrog process. And then it starts building a column and just moves in the direction of the wind most intensely and most rapidly. And fire is opportunistic. It's probing. It's searching for something to burn. And if it finds something, away we go. Once there was ignition, the fire burned fast. It reached town in under 20 minutes. One of the worst things about the fire was it happened so darn quickly. I came into town to pick my wife up at about 10 to 5. This is Richard from the Lytton Museum and Archives. And there was smoke at that end of town. And I drove down to have a look and see what was going on. And the fire came over the edge of the road and jumped across the road where the railway tracks are. I went up and I turned around and came back. And by that time, a friend of mine's house was burning at the end of Main Street right there, a couple of doors from, from Lorna's Museum. My daughter phoned me and said, Mom, there's a fire in town. And then all my husband and I could think of was, the whole town is going. We knew it already. I didn't think about my two sons' houses. I didn't think about the museum. I didn't think about her store. We just went and got our daughter, got her to get her staff out of town. And, and then we left. It was so quick. The whole town burned in 26 minutes. Residents chose between three evacuation routes from Lytton. Northwest to Lillooet, northeast to Kamloops, or southeast to Merritt. Most people stayed with friends and family. The fire kept burning for days. I checked. Oh, shit, I've lost my house. Holy shit, I've lost my hometown. We lost our data. We lost our survey pins. We lost everybody. This is Patrick Michelle again. It wasn't just a portion of the town. It wasn't just a house. An entire town. That is a catastrophic loss that had never happened in Canada before. The Linton Fire was unique in its total destruction of the community. After the fire, there was nothing to return to, nowhere for residents to gather. But there are many ways to measure the scale of a fire. That same summer, the Sparks Lake fire near Kamloops caused a kind of fire thunderstorm called a pyrocumulonimbus that generated thousands of lightning strikes. In 2016, the Fort McMurray fire in Alberta forced 88,000 people to evacuate. And in 2003, the Okanagan Mountain Park fire consumed 239 homes in Kelowna 
and threatened the town, forcing the evacuation of 27,000 residents. I grew up in Kelowna, which is just a couple hours from Lytton, and spent about three weeks evacuated from my home that summer. I had many friends that lost their houses, their family photographs, all their clothing. I remember checking the news daily to see if my family's home had been taken, and I remember the night the wind changed, blowing the fire from within a few hundred feet of our home back into the mountains. And since 2003, wildfire seasons are getting worse. Since the 1970s, the area burned in Canada has doubled, and in the western United States, it's quadrupled. Just three years prior, in 2018, the most destructive fire in California's history leveled the town of Paradise, killing 85 people. This past summer in 2023, a wildfire destroyed the historic Hawaiian town of Lahaina, killing 98 people. Dozens of wildfires continue to torch the western U.S. and Canada. The Snake River complex is the highest priority wildfire. Hornville fire. California, the Caldor fire. Telegraph, Mezcal and Slate fires. The Hoover Ridge fire. Thousands of evacuees in limbo. Whipping winds will again fan ferocious flames today. Experts are having to find new ways to convey just how extreme the situation is. I asked Mike Flanagan, the fire expert, about the relationship between climate change and wildfire. He says that there are three ways that climate change impacts fire season. The warmer it gets, the longer the fire season is. Fire season starts earlier, ends later. Second, the warmer it is, the more lightning we expect. All things being equal, more lightning means more fire. 50% of the fires in Canada are started by lightning, but they're responsible for most of that area burned. Third reason is probably the most complicated, but probably the most important. As the atmosphere warms, the ability of the atmosphere to suck moisture out of those dead fuels on the forest floor increases almost exponentially. The drier the fuel, the easier it is for a fire to start, easier it is for a fire to spread, and means more fuel is available to burn. When I talked to Mike in the summer of 2023, Canada was experiencing its worst wildfire season on record. Tens of millions of people have been warned about potentially dangerous air quality as intense wildfires burn across Canada. Today, the sun rose over the northeast shrouded in smoke. Haze covering Manhattan skyline and bridges and the Washington Monument in D.C. Forest fires are a recurring nightmare. And with the heat rising and no rain in the foreseeable future, conditions will remain ripe for more fires. While the Donny Creek fire burned in northern British Columbia, the eastern provinces like Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario also faced record-breaking fires. The fires were so bad that smoke was changing the air quality right across the continent. I've done research in climate change for, and fire for over 30 years. And you know, some of the models that I produce suggest the West would be the, where we see the signal first, and then kind of mid-century, we'd see it in eastern Canada. Perhaps we're seeing it a lot earlier than mid-century. Perhaps this is the start of what's coming. On the global scale, climate change is driving more intense and more frequent wildfires. But to Lytton residents, the fire isn't exactly a climate change story. Residents point out that they live in a fire ecosystem. The Fraser Canyon has always been dry and hot, and it has always burned. But many residents do blame what they believe to be the source of the spark. On the day of the fire, multiple people saw sparks between a CN railway train as it headed toward Lytton. The first report of the fire happened 20 minutes after the train passed through town. 
The first witness was Chief Jordan Spinks from the Kanakabur Indian Bat. He saw the fire. He was on 911, he was running, and before he got to Lytton, the town was on fire. A dynamite fuse. An investigation by the Transportation and Safety Board of Canada found no evidence that the train started the fire. Still, the village of Lytton is suing the National Railways for running during the heat wave despite the extreme fire risk. The case will go before the BC Supreme Court. This disjunction between the official and the community account of the fire can feel like another scene in the long history of the railroad where governments and companies neglect the railway's effect on the local communities who live alongside its tracks. Even if the fire wasn't started by the train, the railway company is responsible for caring for weeds and debris along the tracks. Community members like Richard and Patrick point out that the condition of this property is a real risk point for fire. Yeah, the railways are are terrible. (laughs) They're just terrible. it used to be that they would they would take and they would just spray weed killer all the way along. And then the environmental people said, no, no, you can't do that. So the weeds grow up and then there's sparks because it's machinery, heavy machinery, eh? And there's sparks all over the place and you, you end up with fires being caused. Did a spark from that train cause that fire? We can't prove it. Was the ember so hot that just a piece of soot could have fallen off the diesel locomotive or started that fire? It's a possibility. Litton burned down, but we don't know the cause yet. Do we need to? It doesn't matter how the goddamn fire started. What matters is it started on your property and burnt my house. What caused the fire isn't the topic of this story. But as I spoke to people in the community, I came to understand that how one defines what caused the fire has a huge role in how recovery happens. If the train caused the fire, the railroad company might be liable for the damage. If climate change caused the fire, as the government said, then the solution would be to build back net zero, which has massively delayed rebuilding. If the cause was simply because it is a fire ecosystem and the community did not fully implement so-called fire smart practices, then net zero is not necessary, only an improvement of fire aware planning and maintenance. Stories matter. They have an important role in how communities recover, not just their physical homes, but their local cultures and connections too. Lytton lost four major collections in less than an hour. The plates, the baskets, the Lytton Museum and Archive, the Chinese History Museum, almost nothing remains. Even the town's bylaws were burned, as was the backup, which was stored in the basement of the Lytton Museum and Archives, and they've needed to be rewritten from scratch. These losses are in many ways irrevocable. Many of the objects and documents simply can't be replaced. Two years after the fire, stewards are still grappling with how to rebuild. Their commitments to their collections show that archives are not inert repositories of documents and artifacts, but community collections that connect generations and carry histories forward. As they move forward, stewards are facing big questions. How can these archives and museums continue when most of their objects are gone? What gives archives like the ones lit and lost meaning to the people who steward them and to the communities around them? Mm-hmm.
We tend to think of archives and museums as separate from regular daily life. They're cleaner than other spaces, more regulated. They're climate controlled and have extensive mechanisms for protecting objects from security guards to glass casements. However, archives and museums are still ecological spaces. A spider might build a web in a corner. Dust might gather. A pipe might burst and mold and mildew could grow in a wall. As much as they might try to be outside of ecological processes, they're very much embedded in them. And as climate change leads to more frequent extreme weather events, the risk of a flood, a fire, or some other ecological crisis invading the pristine space of an archive is growing. We're seeing examples unfold in real time and across large and small institutions. In 2017, melting permafrost caused a flood at the Svalbard Global Seed Vault and imperiled seed samples. In 2018, a fire at the National Museum of Brazil resulted in Alexandria-level losses of cultural material. In 2020, a fire at the Museum of Chinese in America in New York City led to fire losses in the display collection and extensive water damage in the archives. In Lytton, it wasn't just part of a collection that was lost. It was everything from the four main collections, not to mention the personal collections that live in trunks and on bookshelves in people's houses. Consider the scale of the loss. Not only were these collections lost, but everything down to the town's bylaws, tax documents, and financial records were gone. The fire incinerated the material that would provide the foundation for recovery. As a place-based, research-driven story series, archival ecologies will look at how communities move forward from events like the 2021 fire, the first season will tell the stories of Lytton's cultural institutions through the voices of the people stewarding its four main collections and through the places and histories surrounding them. You can expect a deep dive into objects and their histories, an introduction to the multicultural geographies of the Fraser Canyon, close-up looks at each collection and the people stewarding them, interviews with archive and preservation experts, and a range of perspectives on what collections mean and what recovery from loss looks like. As stewards and conservators grapple with the loss of collections, they talk about what was lost, they describe the many challenges of recovery, and they consider the broader implications of how to protect and carry forward the stories that archives and objects hold in the face of continued risk. The new collections stewards imagine sometimes look quite different than the ones they had. Instead of a collection, for example, perhaps a community center for teaching cultural practices, instead of an object, digital repositories of photographs, documents, and 3D scanned objects. In these differences, stewards show a variety of approaches to what it might look like to recover from an event like the Lytton Fire. These differences also signal important cultural transformations that are becoming more pervasive as extreme weather events become more frequent and widespread. As researchers, we're really interested in how climate change is changing our relationship to cultural material, to the stories we tell about who we are. If archives and collections let us tell histories to better know ourselves in the present and to imagine where we might go, what happens when those objects are no longer there? What kinds of stories do we tell and how do we tell them? How do we imagine the futures we might move into? In the coming episodes, we'll dive into the archival ecologies of the Lytton area and its cultural collections. Stay tuned for more on how our cultures are changing with the weather.
Archival Ecologies is created and hosted by Jamie Collins and is a production of Blue Lab at Princeton University. For their support and expertise, we also thank, at Princeton, the High Meadows Environmental Institute, the Humanities Council, and the Office of the Dean of Research, as well as Cuvenda Media. This project has also received invaluable research support from Jamie Rodriguez, Kavia Kamath, and Molly Taylor. Voiceover by Mario Soriano. Music by Hamilton Poe.